Hey guys, welcome to the I Hope They Hear This podcast. Today we have Chungwook Lee. She is a lawyer who started her own firm and she is a board member of the Korean American Coalition or KAC, the Atlanta chapter. Today we get to talk to her about kind of her life, how she grew up, um, what motivated her to becoming a lawyer and eventually opening up her own business, small business. And um, we just get to hear about her story and yeah, who she is. So. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to the I Hope They Hear This podcast. Today we have a, a brand new guest, um, and we actually met very recently. Um, it wasn't even in person um, because of the pandemic, but we met through the KAC's uh one of the professional networking nights. And for those of you who've been listening for a while, if you remember, I wanna say several months, maybe even half a year back, um, we had a guest named Hannah and Eric on. They were KAC board members. And um, today we have Mrs. Chungwook Lee. Hello. Hey, David, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. Um, and correct me for, if I'm wrong, but you are also a KAC board member, right? Yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you just, for people who don't know, who forgot the episodes, can you just explain what KAC is and what you do? Sure. So KAC stands for Korean American Coalition, and it's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, and we strive to engage our community on civic engagement and also empower our community through uh, voter registration, naturalization, and just workshops to be self-aware mm -hmm. of what our community is going through and what we need to sort of harness our power into action. Mm -hmm. So I've been kind of involved uh, with KAC since 2006. It's a national organization and we have chapters all over the United States. And it was initially started in LA uh, back in 1983, but really got their prominence um, when LA riots happened. Um, mm -hmm. So that's when like they realized, okay, we need English speaking community leaders to advocate for our community's interest mm -hmm. because African-Americans had their leaders, you know, obviously white Caucasian-Americans, they had their leaders speaking out. But I think Koreans, you know, if I don't know if you've seen any of those like, I don't know, short clips about um, LA riots, you only see Koreans kind of protesting or the store owners kind of like brandishing their guns, right? Mm -hmm. Or people who are devastated by the fires or destruction of their businesses. So I think, you know, it started when it really called for the community to sort of like stand up and sort of represent our community. So it, it got really sort of rise up to their prominence then. And mm -hmm. we've been trying ever since to sort of raise our uh, awareness in each community that we live in. So I've been part of KAC for a while and I encourage you guys to check it out. It's kacalenta.org uh, or just Google KAC uh, Atlanta and uh, we have Facebook and the website that you yeah. can check us out. And most recently, one of the campaigns that I was, um, I kind of highlighted on my podcast was the uh, census, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Trying to get the Korean American population pretty much on the map um, for the government to to be able to know and understand that we are here and that um, our interests would be looked after, right? Sure, sure. So it's trillions of 
national funding. And also I was surprised to see how the Korean government was very sort of active and wanting to find out exactly how many Korean nationals also live here, right? So, oh, wow. on, yeah, so, you know, they have to sort of uh, disseminate their resources, right? As a Korean national, if you're a green heart card holder, you're still Korean national in the view of South Korea. So, you know, they have a consulate office here that represents, I think, the Southeast, but you know, obviously from Korean government. Actually, I was involved in one of the uh, workshops that the Korean consulate and the Jewish American uh, young professionals held. And the Korean consulate said that the Georgia economic sort of development is like one of the top three in the nation in terms of Korean American um, economic development in the Southeast compared to the entire nation of the United States. So we know wow. for a fact that there are a lot of Koreans from Korea moving in and also within United States, Korean Americans moving here into the Southeast. So mm. yeah, it's it's definitely a growing population. And also with the, you know, the blue wave of the recent elections and the you know, national spotlight on the Senate race, uh, right. Korean American votes or Korean or Asian American population and like the political sort of power that is emerging is uh, definitely not to be taken lightly. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. So is the idea that, because when I think of Korean American immigration to the States, I actually think mostly LA or like New York, um, but is it now kind of shifting where Korean Americans are coming more to Georgia? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I don't know the hard numbers, mm -hmm. right? And I think the consulate general says like maybe Atlanta is number five or six in terms of Korean American population in the U.S., but mm -hmm. I don't know. I think definitely the numbers of H-Marts and ASI, <laughs> I'm sure they do. They're like you know, market research, right. right? Like how many radius per population they think that they will cater to. But I haven't been anywhere in the US where the size and the number of like Korean markets are are like so many mm. in, in terms of like mile radius um, than Atlanta or Metro Atlanta. So like I would think there is some market, you know, that they're catering to whether it's like, you don't know, other other immigrants or like other Asians. But yeah, I definitely feel like, you know, I've traveled to, I guess, uh, Texas a little bit. I've traveled to Chicago. I've lived in New York, but definitely Korean American population, maybe compared to LA, it's not as like spread out. Mm -hmm. Like you could kind of pinpoint where K-Town is from like Beaufort Highway to Duluth and right. Swanee now that it seems like there are a lot more Koreans that I encounter compared to other Korean populated cities in the US. Mm. Yeah, you know, and um, when you mentioned the Rodney King riots, so when I first, when my family first immigrated to the US, um, it was right, it was to LA and oh, it was wow. like a few years after the Rodney King riots. Sure. So sure. like coming to the States, all of my relatives were like, you have to watch out for black people. Mm. Like, I'm sure a lot of that was driven from ignorance, but sure. in their minds and their perception, it was black people don't like Koreans and that's sure. why they did this. Um, sure. So yeah, I'm really 
happy to know that there is an organization like KAC to advocate for Koreans um, and even to kind of bridge the gap between um, fresh immigrants and what the community is, right? Because you guys, I, I remember during the whole campaign for the census, you guys also did a lot of things in language, right? So in Korean, like how to fill out the census forms and things like that um, to help kind of these people. I mean, like my parents' age, people who um, didn't speak the language, but you know, still needed to engage with the community. And so you guys kind of helped bridge that gap. So disclaimer, we didn't ourselves like generate that uh, internally, but mm -hmm. we borrowed a lot from Advancing Justice and also mm -hmm. our LA chapter um, is the only chapter that is staffed with paid staff full time. So they obviously have more resources. Mm -hmm. So we just kind of, you know, because it's a federal programming, like there wasn't anything state specific other than I don't know, like where the sort of the high density population of Korean Americans lived, but overall general census was a federal sort of mandated counting. So like we just kind of borrowed what other chapters have used or advancing justice had so that we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. But yeah, I mean, yeah. our part is like, because it's all volunteer organization, like we want to definitely just sort of like stretch our manpower and our uh, util utilize our resources most efficiently as possible. So, yeah, yeah I mean, we, we don't like, you know, shy away from like borrowing stuff yeah. <laughs> with permission. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I think like churches had churches have their own sort of space and where Korean Americans kind of go to get their resources. And I think a lot of times when, you know, Atlanta, I think compared to LA or New York or Chicago, like the immigration history is still very relatively young, mm. right? And we don't have a lot of like nonprofit organizations but I think KAC is uniquely situated that there's some 1.5 like me or second generation uh, folks who are sort of interested and we do try to bridge the gap between the first generation like Haninhe, and then also like second gen or millennials. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And, and just to kind of close the loop on this, um, how if someone listening um, is saying, oh, wow, KAC sounds interesting. Um, how would they engage with the organization? What is the easiest way to do so? Sure. Uh, find us on Facebook. And then uh, we do, you know, we used to have like monthly happy hours a couple of years back, but then we kind of scale that back. But then, and also due to COVID, we haven't had that many um, programming, but, you know, we post all our pro programming on Facebook and you could reach us out through that at, or also just Google KAC Metro Atlanta and then just shoot us an email. Yeah. And, you know, you were mentioning how in Atlanta, especially the Korean American um, population is relatively young, right? It's there is just now starting to be kind of like a third generation, right? Um, it's, sure. it's mostly first, second generation. And I think due to that fact, the Korean Americans in Atlanta don't really have a set identity. And this is just to kind of reiterate what I'm trying to do with these stories um, on this podcast uh, is we, let's, let's try to figure out who we are and let's try to kind of get the word out there um, of who we are, like kind of our sure. unique struggles and our stories. So with that said, um, Jungkook, if, if you wouldn't mind kind of walking us through your story, because you mentioned your uh, 1.5 generation, um, kind of, uh, so that, that means that you came here at a 
you weren't born here, um, right? Right. So, can it, can you walk us through how you and your family ended up in the states? Um, what were the circumstances that brought you here, and kind of how you navigated growing up and what you're doing now? Okay. So uh, I was gonna say, David, that there's no like you you hit the jackpot in terms of like finding the formula that works because who doesn't like to talk about themselves, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I guess you're the Korean male version of Oprah. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I I, I think uh, I listened to your podcast and I, I reached out. But yeah, one of the things that I really loved about how you approach it is because, you know, it's very non-threatening, neutral mm. kind of way. Like, yeah, just tell me about yourself, right? <laughs> so everyone is to a certain extent kind of self-absorbed. So like, yeah, what a great way to get things started. But yeah. <laughs> Um, I came here with my family, my parents, my older brother, who is three years older than me, um, back in 1986. So not to date myself, I was uh, uh, 10 when I first came here, and we settled in New York, in, in the Bronx. Mm. So because that's where my mom's parents, my grandparents were there, and also my mom's side of the family. So... I don't know the history of my grandparents when they immigrated to the US, but they actually went through um, Brazil and mm. like somehow ended up in the US. But then my, my uh, mom's older sister's husband worked for uh, Korean Air, I guess back in the 70s or 80s. And then like he somehow you know, managed to immigrate to the US. And then my grandfather came here, I think, illegally through Brazil. And then he invited his, uh, you know, uh, children. And uh, my mom was married back in Korea, but then he petitioned for us when he, I think, was able to petition. So we came here, I guess what Trump will call like chain migration, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that's how it started. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we settled in New York because, you know, my all my mom's family were there, my grandparents were there. So, but it wasn't very smooth sailing because, you know, my uh, dad was teaching in, uh, in high school in Korea and he he wasn't like math or uh, like uh, whatever very those uh typical subjects but he taught Korean I don't know if that's still referred to it as that but it's mm -hmm. like a prepared military preparedness right because there's a mandatory you know um conscription in Korea for mm -hmm. all Korean males so my dad my dad didn't go to college, but then because his family was so poor, but he kind of joined the military and rise up to the ranks. And then somehow he settled in to getting a job in a high school, um, teaching the, I guess, male students by military preparedness and then also female students too for like first aid kid or whatever. Uh, and then, so he was doing that. And then my mom was a stay at home mother. Uh, stay-at-home wife um, and then when they came here like they had no like sort of like business experience whatsoever so my aunts they were they had some like um, one of those like uh, what is a sewing machine sewing company right that did textile I think that's that was pretty big in the 80s 
in the mm. East Coast and also West Coast. And then like, they didn't have any experience, but they were just kind of uh, forced to get work at those kind of jobs but then it didn't last long because like they were in mid-30s and to sort of catch upon that kind of very specialized skill it was too much for them to mm. get good at it and then I guess they just didn't like it so like they started their uh just you know businesses on their own but it just they just never had very much luck you know mm. so then I realized okay you know, in order to become successful in the U.S., a lot of people say like, oh, you know, America is a land of opportunity. Right. And if you work hard, then you'll succeed. But well, working hard in itself, like doesn't really lead you to anything. And it's not guaranteed, like unless you have some luck along mm. with it, you know, but I guess my, my parents just never had <laughs> any luck in terms of businesses. We had like shoe repair shop that just kind of burned to the ground. Like literally? Um, yeah, literally. Yeah, literally. And uh, they didn't have any insurance uh, coverage uh, on that. Um, uh, but I could go into that a little bit more in detail. But yeah, we had like gift shop. My mom had a nail salon. We had like a grocery store in New uh, York that was like robbed. And my dad was pistol whipped. Oh <laughs> so yeah, so they, they just went through like horrible, horrible. Um, yeah, like sort of like a, a like financial... I don't know, ruins, mm. right? In terms of opportunities that they felt like, you know, America was paved with like gold. Everywhere you look is like opportunities. And I don't know, they thought maybe like they'll become the next millionaire yeah. just coming here. But it's just the reality and the dream didn't really match. You know, um, like as I'm listening, I'm, I'm realizing that some of the things that you went through, um, I, I think there is some common ground for a lot of other Korean American immigrants. Like one sure. thing um, first, I think a lot of people my age and younger might not realize is um, when Korean Americans first immigrated, it was through like family, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was, there was a, I guess the, the idea was that um, if you're here and then if you've uh, successfully immigrated, then the type of people that we want to come is also people like you because you've, mm -hmm. you've shown us that you can do it. So, um, if you had family, it was a lot easier to get, you know, visas, green cards to, to come to the state. So for a lot of people whose parents immigrated here, it was because they had relatives or um, some, yeah, sort of connection that they were able to come here, right? Sure, sure. Um, so, but I, yeah, I don't know if a lot of people know that, but um, also the fact that um, because we came here, a lot of our parents' age came here without you know, like set careers, like they had to do a lot of small businesses, right? So a lot of times they were like, they had a lot of cash on hand um, because the nature of the business was cash. So there, I think a lot of people I talked to, their parents were robbed or were attacked mm -hmm. because there was this kind of stereotype that Asian Americans are small business owners and they, they get targeted. And I think that's something that happens even now. Sure, um, sure. Something uh, I think like, Last year, I, I heard about someone who they own a business downtown. Um, they yeah. came back home in the suburbs, and someone had followed them the whole whole time, and they they got robbed when they went to work the next day. So yeah, I mean, there are strings of uh, armed robberies or burglaries, 
um, that were targeting Asian Americans, I think last year, like mm -hmm. in Gwinnett County or what have you in the suburbs. So I think that is either an inside job or I don't know, but yeah, yeah definitely um, like one of my mentors, like he did say like, oh yeah, when you have a lot of cash, then there's a lot of trouble that followed that cash. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's really true. Yeah. So either someone that knows that you have it or people who just kind of stake out because they know that you deal heavily in cash. So yeah, I mean, I think that goes with the territory, mm -hmm. right? Being sort of part of the underbelly of the economy, people are dealing with cash. Um, so I, I wonder though, like as we transition from cashless, like kind of economy, like I would think that there will still be some remblance of like semblance of cash, like in the future, even yeah. if we go all digital, right? But yeah, I, I, I wonder if like the likelihood of sort of workplace violence or small business violence would be limited in the future. But mm. yeah, that I don't, I don't know. No, I actually think that because of the types of businesses Korean Americans tend to be in, that will be the last ones to transition away from cash. Sure. So I actually think it's going to put an even bigger target on us, mm. like, or because there, no, no one else is going to have cash. Robbers are going to kind of specifically target. I know these people still deal with cash, so let's let's get after yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, if the consumers are not using cash, then by default, I think business will have no choice but to transition. So yeah. I think a lot of businesses now like are probably half and half, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe the trend towards like just credit cards would be like 70, 30 uh, credit cards to 30% cash or something like that. So yeah. I think it will be driven by like how the consumers prefer to pay for it. But as you go into economies or sort of society in terms of like lower class uh, communities where banking system is not that widely utilized and obviously those customers will prefer cash versus like paying with credit card, whatever. So mm -hmm. if you're catering to businesses where the consumers don't carry, uh, only carry cash, then obviously your business will stick to that model. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, hopefully it uh, gets better. But um, so, you as a very young child had to kind of witness a lot of these like negative things happening to your parents right yeah so it was kind of very traumatic and i yeah. think i kind of internalized it a lot mm -hmm. and then you know i don't know i think so that's why like like my brother and i like we we were really good kids like we didn't get into trouble mm -hmm. like we're we did everything we're supposed to do because we saw how our, our parents were just really struggling so the last business that they had was so after there was an armed robbery that was a junior year in my high school right so we we uh lived in, we still lived in the Bronx, but I actually uh, went went to school in White Plains, which is like a suburb of like a more wealthier kind of uh, 
neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So my my dad, like he was shooken up pretty badly. Yeah. And the cops weren't really, you know, trying to find the perpetrator. So, and then I don't think we own that grocery store. So I think it was some sort of a lease and they just did a management for a couple of years. And then the original owners, they wanted it back. So Mm. my parents decided to move from uh, like, you know, New York to North Carolina. So that was senior year in in high school and they ended up buying out of like <laughs> out of everything or anything they could have purchased they ended up buying this uh southern like buffet style restaurant. Mm. And I think that was probably the hardest sort of business for my parents to undertake because oh, wow. I mean literally like from my graduating class in New York was like maybe 350 kids to it went down to 125. You imagine Mm. like what the scale of like the school and then like everyone didn't lock their doors. And I mean, it was a very, very small town and there was actually a Confederate flag painted on the um, football like kind of stadium And I didn't know what that was. Yeah, Yeah, because like living from New York, going to North Carolina, like I didn't, I I really didn't know the South at all. Mm. And like, I I thought iced tea was just the Lipton that came in a can, (laughs) right? And then I had no idea what grits were. Uh. And I'm like, wow, this is so different for me, you know? But then I imagine like how difficult my my parents had it because Mm. they had to learn all these like chicken and dumplings, Salisbury steak and macaroni (laughs) and cheese, all these like dishes that they've never tasted in their lives, right? And then they're kind of thrusted upon like this huge learning curve Mm. and they had to conduct the business and you know it's like for me I was like oh you know it was difficult decision or difficult transition because I was going into senior year in high school but my parents like that that really didn't even enter into their mind because they had to adjust for themselves to survive and like I don't think it just registered in their mind like oh this would be a like senior year in high school for our daughter and she needs to stay in the same school so that she'll transition into college but no never mind it's like okay we're just gonna go because in order for us to survive we need to do something and the reason why we ended up going to North Carolina was because like they met this random Korean family and then they're like yeah there's a restaurant that's for sale and you guys should come down and live and like they just they made that decision to just you know just pack everything and, and mm. go so i don't know even now like i've never really sat down and asked my parents like what were you thinking right <laughs> <laughs> i mean it was just kind of very random you know yeah. but yeah that was pretty difficult pretty difficult and then um well, like, can, can i ask you because because you you said you moved here when you were 10. Mm-hmm. So I moved to LA when I was six and okay. I have an older brother who's two years older than me. And I took to the language pretty quickly because I mean, going into kindergarten, I think I was like at that ripe age, but for a second grader um, who's already been through kind of a part of grade school in Korea, I, I know that it was much more difficult for my brother at eight, but, and 10 sounds very young, but you know, that's like fourth grade. So sure. 
I mean, how was, what was it a challenge for you to pick up English? Because obviously right now you're, you know, completely fluent and I'm honestly kind of surprised by that. Um, but yeah, how, how was kind of that crossing that language barrier like for you? I guess I was smart. I mean, I, you know, female, they say like on average, they, their language skills are much better than, than males. Mm. Right. So I think my brother, like being 13, like had more difficult time. And even now I think he prefers to speak Korean. And mm. then also like he, you know, kind of speaks with my Korean, uh, my mom in Korean and, and takes care of my mom, you know, so I think he prefers it. But then like, for me, I think I came at that cusp where mm. you know it's a like it's it was old enough that I would retain some Korean mm -hmm. and then young enough that I would pick up a brand new language so okay. one of the things actually you know that was good was because in New York because there are a lot of immigrants right and we lived in the Bronx there was actually a ESL teacher that was Korean Mm. yeah but he really didn't taught us any like teach us anything I think he just gave us like written exercise you know like subject verb agreement like exercises right. and like I just remember just going through the hoops and um you know just trying to survive and I just remember when so my brother he went to junior high school and then um middle school uh, in New York when we first came and then like he got beat up by Korean gangs like from his school so my mom was like so traumatized she's mm. like no 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 we're not we're not you know gonna send you to back to that school district so we ended up going to White Plains where my Wow. Brother, my dad purchased uh, the shui parent shop, but then after it burned down, hmm. we moved back to the Bronx, but then we still had to go to the same school in, in White Plains because for us to go to a school in the Bronx where our district was, it was just too dangerous, you know? Hmm. Wow. So I remember just spending a lot of time, I think in the local library, like I just read a lot of... I don't know, like young adult fiction. <laughs> mm. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I do remember struggling. I remember being in ESL classes. You know, I remember the Korean American uh, kids, my grade kind of not playing with me because I couldn't speak English. But then we went to a school district where there weren't that many Korean uh, American students period so I mm. think I just ended up by default you know trying to befriend some of the regular American kids and then for some reason I ended up going to like joining the debate club and then mm. just kind of I guess learn my speaking skills then um, but yeah I mean English didn't come like that easily to me mm. um, and then like the only literally only word that I knew before coming to the U.S. was egg because we had those like A to Z alphabet 
poster uh-huh. in our living room in Korea. And I guess like my parents wanted us to at least know the alphabet before coming to the US, but then I couldn't get behind E, letter E. <laughs> and then for some reason, egg looked like so just kind of bizarre, but it was short enough for me to like plant it in my head. Like, okay, mm. that's the only word that I know. And then like the first sentence that I learned how to say was, can I have a can I please have one strawberry ice cream cone? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's, but so, you know, it's so interesting, like some of the specific things that we remember. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that, that's <laughs> so funny. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I was an English major in college, right? But mm. still, like in high school, I remember whenever I had my papers back, like it would just bleed with like red marks because. Uh all my, you know, just like grammar wasn't that great, you know? So yeah, I mean, still for me, like I, I, I still feel like I'm learning, mm. you know? And I feel like out of listening, listening, speaking, writing, reading, like writing is probably my weakest sort of uh, point in terms of language. So mm. I'm still working at it. Mm. But yeah, it's funny when people say like, oh, you speak English really well. I'm like, what else, you know, can I like, what language do you expect me to, you know, speak? But mm. yeah, I mean, I do uh, uh, sort of feel badly that like my Korean hasn't retained itself. Mm. So I do want to like learn Korean, but I'm just too lazy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, then I-, I was gonna ask you a question. I-, I think I know the answer though. But when you think, which language do you think in? Oh, of course, English. Okay, okay. Gotcha. It's, it's, it's dominant, dominant, mm. dominant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, just, that's really interesting to me because I know um, for friends who come like right at that age that you mm-hmm. described, like between mm-hmm. 10 and 13, a lot of them end up just really sticking to Korean and mm. having such a difficult time picking up English that yeah. they never really fully grasp it. And like um, some of them even like pray when they pray, they have to pray in Korean because like they yeah. can't. Yeah. So. Oh, that's that's interesting. So, oh, okay. Well, at, at least the language part of it wasn't that difficult. It sounds like um, while you were kind of going through all these all this craziness, right? So, um, how long did the uh, um, the buffet last in in North Carolina? Yeah. So it didn't last very long because you know, like it was a very neighborhood kind of a business model. And then the owner like lived his entire life in that neighborhood. And, uh, you know, he hired his daughter and all the like employees who were working there uh, were like the neighborhood people, right? Mm. That they've knew each other like 30, 40, 50, 60 years even, right? And then you have these brand new, well, like Korean Americans just kind of jumping in. Um, it only lasted for maybe two or three years. Yeah. Mm. And then they ended up having to sell it back to the seller, the original owner. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that was like really tough because uh, like the breakfast crowd was like the busiest. Right. So mm. people I mean, and then I guess most people were farmers um, and 
So like a lot of people would come and have breakfast at six o'clock in the morning. And of course, like I would go to school during the weekdays, but then I have to work as a waitress on Saturdays and Sundays. And that's when also there were like breakfast crowd was really busy too, because some people would come back from church. But, you know, my parents had like very difficult time sort of like handling the American employees and then like the, the restaurant business, the profit margin is very slim, you know? Mm. So we just like, they were just struggling, you know? I mean, so it didn't last very long and we tried to do some catering businesses, but even then like, you know, I don't know, like there are some events that they did go, but it wasn't a big moneymaker at all. Gotcha. So they, were, they really struggled. And then that's when like, I had to wake up like 5 30 5 o'clock in the morning to uh help out at the restaurant and mm. then like i would i would wish like i would i would pray to god like oh my god you know when i escape this hell <laughs> like i want to sleep as late i want to sleep in <laughs> as late um, as i want and i want to wake up at 11 o'clock or maybe like one o'clock you mm, know but mm-hmm. then once i got to college like magically my eyes opened up and <laughs> like five or six so I've been a morning person ever since yeah so So I guess it's still stuck with me so did you go to college in North Carolina then yeah so I went to college in North Carolina I see I see okay and then so wait which which college did you go to I went to UNC oh I see I see so while you were going there so if I'm if I'm getting the math correctly if if the restaurant only really lasted two three years then does that mean did your parents kind of just move on to a different venture or? Oh, yeah. So what happened was they befriended this uh, Korean grandma. I think they met at a Korean grocery store or something. And then they started working for at the Charlotte Douglas Airport as oh. one of those like a uh, food vendor cashier type. Mm-hmm. So that was the last of them owning a small business. Oh, OK. So, oh, so, wow. So did small businesses must have left a pretty bad taste in your mouth, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, we were talking about yesterday how, yeah. like, I, I'm i a really, like, a reluctant small business owner and growing up, like, my parent, like, my dad used to be so stressed out, you know, and I, like, I don't know, I just, I just never saw them, like, being happy or relaxed, right? Mm. Like, especially when we had that restaurant, something will break, some like some, you know, like the health inspection would come and they would just kind of knock off points for whatever, you know, Mm. minor um, infractions that they had or the refrigerator would break down or a customer would complain, you know. So, you know, I I was sort of on the indirect receiving end of that, you know, mm. and I was like, okay, I, I'll never own a small business. I'll just be happy, like getting a paycheck, mm-hmm. you know, but then like we talked about how now I'm a small business person or I'm an inter- entrepreneur mm-hmm. um, owning my own business. But yeah, I mean, from just watching my parents struggle and just really never tasting or getting even close to succeeding that really made a huge impact on me and said okay i'm just gonna be a happy worker and just work for someone for a government or whatever you know and then just Mm -hmm. collect the paycheck and that's that's where you know my aspirations were 
but then I guess the <laughs> things have weird way of working out. But so yeah, now like I I've uh, owned my own law firm for the last I opened it what 2008. So wow, 12 13, years. Yeah, 12, 13 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. And for the astute listener, uh, you might have already guessed uh, that our guest is a lawyer because the two things I was like, oh, that's why she became a lawyer is uh, you were part of the debate team. And um, you did when you uh, majored in English, did you know you were kind of pre-law already or? No, not at all. Yeah. So my dad had this dream of like me becoming an English professor oh. and then like going to Korea to become a professor or like staying in the U.S. and becoming an English professor. So he's like, oh, yeah, you should, you know, become a professor because, you know, back then or even now, like you know, being a teacher or being a professor was so highly regarded, right, yeah. in Korea. So I think that was what he he wished that, that I would become. So, mm. you know, like, and, and I thought about it, but I'm like, oh, there's no way that I could compete with native speakers or all these people with immaculate grammar. And like, I have to submit pages and pages of, you know, written projects and I, I just can't, you know, so. Mm. But I mean, I just had fun with the, the major, like, you know, um, I love reading, right? Put me in front of words and I'll just sit there hours and hours and then and just mm -hmm. staring at the words, but put me in front of some sort of formula or numbers, like I'll just <laughs> walk away within like five minutes because I just can't, my brain doesn't work that way, you mm -hmm. know? But interestingly enough, like what I do now, like I do mostly divorce law is like I look at numbers all the way, all, all the time. Interesting. Yeah, because what they fight about is numbers. Mm. <laughs> like who gets what, who yeah, gets to keep yeah. what. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so what, what's the number? What is the asset division? What is the child support mm. amount going to be? So that's the irony, right? Mm. That you would think that, oh, as an attorney, like, yeah, if you practice like constitutional law and you have this like legal theory that you're sort of bouncing off, right? But mm -hmm. it comes when it comes to the itty gritty or realities of what domestic law is at the end of the day it's just all purely numbers and you're fighting about like what number is the ultimate sort of settlement that you're getting interesting so and i'm really interested in this uh, i wanted to ask you about the transition from i'm, I'm not gonna i'm gonna be happy just being like a salaried worker um to going to well I own my own small business now, um, right? Because it seems very counterintuitive based on some of the traumas and some of the experiences you have. So can yeah, you kind of yeah. walk us through how that happened? So like I said, like I wasn't, I wasn't like this entrepreneur when I was five or 10, like telling everyone I'm going to one day like go from my lemonade stand to <laughs> building a million dollar empire or like pitching like to Shark Tank, whatever, you know, so that was never my plan. Right. But mm -hmm. I think just being an immigrant child and then also having immigrant parents kind of direct me in whatever little ways that they think that they were kind of giving me the guidance they were like oh it's a matter of fact that you know sooner or later you will open your own 
law office. So why not do it now? You know, mm. so they really just kind of pushed me over the fence because I was like, oh, I don't know what I should do after my first law firm just kind of like, uh, I guess, broken up their partnership. So I was in that crossroad, right? Whether should I apply to other law firms or where do I go from here? So I think they're Korean mentality it's like oh yeah you just split and you you form your own <laughs> you know so for me it's like little little lot knowledge is dangerous I think I knew barely minimum to feel like okay I have a license and I could do this but then not realizing how dangerous <laughs> that that license or wielding a sword can be if it was kind of used in an inappropriate way mm. um, or like by omission, like I didn't do what I'm supposed to do. But mm. yeah, I mean, I, 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 like I said, it was very reluctantly. I was kind of talked into that, but I was young enough and foolish enough to say, hey, if someone else could do it, why can't I do it? You know, mm. kind of thing. But literally I had like two or three clients. And then, yeah, even now, like my practice is not volume driven. So, I mean, I could have three, four new clients per month and they'll keep me busy, you know? Mm. So I mean, my my overhead or professional sort of like small businesses like mine, um, like where the overhead is not that big. And if you could control whether or not you're going to have your own employees, I think it's much more flexible and much more doable. Right. And it's mm. not as daunting as like, I don't know, I think like opening a dentist office is far more kind of uh risky right because not only do you need to have all the equipment there are hundreds of thousands of dollars but then you also need you know assistance you need front person you need insurance person so the model of law firm like is like kind of scaled down kind of vision and you can make a business out of it but if you want to keep it small scale then that's also doable as well mm, wow so then because because the part that still is kind of surprising to me is the the it kind of sounds like it was easy for you to be talked into starting the small business like and was that would you say that part of that was because it was kind of familiar to you i'm having witnessed your parents do it or like why wasn't it a bigger hurdle you think I think, yeah, I think that subliminal sort of, you know, like what was ingrained in me was mm. definitely there, right? And then I think about like today, I, I kind of thought about like what I wanted to say, but then also I thought about like just the life journey that that I had, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a first college graduate in my family, you know, mm. my parents you know, my mom just graduated from junior high and my my dad graduated from high school and none of their families were very uh, wealthy, right? Mm. So like every way, like along the way, I kind of needed to figure things out on my own and I needed to, and my parents were kind of very different in a way. They were like, oh, just because you are a female or just because you're a daughter, like all you need to carry about is like marrying off really well. Mm. No, none of that. My, mm. my mom would always say like, you need to get your, 
you know, career straight, you know, and then like think about other stuff, you know. Wow. So she was very, very heavily, you know, kind of um, lobbying for me to get my education. And like she was the most happiest when I did well in school and mm. she was very supportive of me going to law school. I mean, my dad too, but, you know, they never like, you know, said like, oh, you need to get married. Like, what are you doing pursuing all these things? Like, but no, they're very realistic. Like, mm. it doesn't matter. Like, you need to get your kind of income stream figured out before anything else. And I think also part of it was like, I did work my first job out for a law firm. And then, you know, they're kind of like, I guess I was kind of unhappy or disgruntled as to mm. how there were some differences in terms of male associates and how I was treated. So I was like, okay, like, why do I need to kind of work under someone like that or feel like I'm, I'm not treated equally or fairly? So I think that was kind of fueling inside me, um, probably not as prominent as me trying to figure out like, okay, I need to figure things out on how to fix, how I could, you know, sort of sustain myself and figure out how I can make a living. Gotcha. So I, think, I think that desire just did push me to say, okay, let's just try it out and see what happens, you know? Oh, wow. So, I mean, there was a lot of kind of encouragement and support from your parents um, to set you up to, to become a small business owner. I mean, I mean, yes and no, right? But I think they were just more like, oh, if you're afraid, there's no nothing to be afraid of, even mm. though I've seen their failures, right? But I think yeah. from their point of view, it was completely different business model, right? That I wasn't mm. running a restaurant. I'm not running a grocery store, but this is something very niche market, what I'm doing, that there are people who are willing to pay for my services without me having to chase them down to, to try to convince them that I'm the best mm. um, or they need to hire me, you know, kind of sense. But I don't know now, like having done it for the last 12, 13 years, like I do see sort of differences, difference in like the business model. I see how people take this differently, right? So it is really what you make of it and what your comfort zone is. And I think for me, like, I don't want to make a business out of it, right? I don't need to be on a billboard on a bus, you know, or on a TV, but then like the marketing is what people are going to see and come to you, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know, it's, it's still a constant struggle for me. It's like, how do I scale it in a way that, or how do I sustain it so that right now, if I don't work, I don't have any income. Right. But then mm -hmm. people who make a business out of it, even they're not working, there's, you know, people who are gener generating income for them. So right. how do I strike that balance? But I mean, I don't know for me, like I just don't want to go big scale because there's still a lot of liability at mm. the end of the day. It's my signature. It's my bar number that's being signed off on. And I don't want to hire like two or three like paralegals ultimately have my name on it. But at the end, at the end of the day, like it comes back like done incorrectly like then i have to be responsible for it yeah hey i think that that's a good uh segue into the next question i want to ask is 
what are some of the pros and cons of owning your own business? Because sure. you were in, you were working for a law firm before, and now mm -hmm. you kind of are your own boss. So sure, yeah. Can you give us that? Um, definitely the. I'll start with the con that the buck stops with you, right? You have to be ultimately be responsible. If mm -hmm. there is an angry client, you can't just you know, kind of forward a call to your boss or, yeah. you know, try to have someone else handle it. It's you who has to make the sort of the call and make that difficult conversation, right? Mm. Um, if a case ends up, I don't know, working out in a different way or averse to what your client's interest is, then you have to sort of wear the big boy or big girl pants and then like talk to them, you know? Mm. And then... Yeah, so I think the and then it could be kind of isolating, right? And I don't know if there are some listeners uh, who are interested in becoming a, a lawyer. I would definitely advise them to go to a law school where they'll end up practicing, right? So I went to law school up in Connecticut and then came here to Georgia not knowing a single soul. So for mm. me, that was very isolating. And then also becoming like being a woman, I think for men, it's easier for them to just kind of strike up a like a friendship and open a partnership. But I think for females, it's slightly more complicated or mm. it's harder. So it's been kind of difficult for me, right? And uh, to create that synergy on your own. And sometimes there were days where I'm like in my office just by myself trying to like figure things out. And that was really lonely and isolating mm. and like really stressful. Um, the pros of it is the pure kind of flexibility that you have, right? Mm. So, I mean, for me, like just because the, the hours are flexible, like I still went to work at nine and came home at six, like every single day for the first like almost a decade right because mm -hmm. i need to be in that structural scheduling and but having that flexibility like having to just focus on something else like during the work day or shifting your or pivoting your practice area without having to get a permission from someone else like that was really nice right mm -hmm. so i think the freedom um, that was, that's always a, a, a nice sort of advantage. And then like just pure income, right? You don't have to divide it yeah. with anyone else, you know, but then you eat what you kill, right? So yeah. if there are days or there are months where like, you're not like, you know, generating income, then you're not generating income. So, mm. so you have to be accountable to whatever activities or whatever cases that you're bringing so that you have to sustain yourself financially. So, yeah, I mean, but I guess it, in the end, like for me now to, I did have an opportunity to like go into a firm or at least get an interview, mm -hmm. but now I'm like, ah, oh, you know, that's just going to be too much caseload work you know and even if i make the same amount i'll be working three or four times it's harder and there mm. isn't any point where i could actually like fire a client because i don't like dealing with them right because there's a firm telling me that i have to work for that client and mm. so for me now to sort of imagine myself working for a firm like that would be very hard pill to swallow after experiencing all this sort of Freedom, freedom and flexibility that mm. that I've had, but I'm I'm sure like study 
paycheck is <laughs> <laughs> nothing too, you know, too shabby, but yeah. I'm just kind of comparing the pros and cons. So mm -hmm. like, I think now I'm just so set in my ways that it would be difficult for me to go and, and learn and sort of meet their expectations. Yeah. Right. Well, so does it happen where lawyers kind of like, have you had the desire to fire a client because you didn't like working with them? Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, it doesn't happen often. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I've I've had it just maybe a handful of times even mm -hmm. then. Um, yeah, because that and then like, because they kind of project like their nervousness, their insecurities and onto you. And mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, if I have a client calling me like every other day, say, oh, what is the what is the status? Oh, I thought about this, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. And I think it could help. Even if I get paid hourly, like I I just, I don't know. It, it It's telling me that they don't trust my sort of abilities mm. to handle their case in a way that is most sort of uh, useful for them, right? For mm. having them to constantly call. So yeah, there were a couple of times where I, I just told the client like, you know, I, I don't know if I were like white, I don't know, male attorney, whether you would respond or you would behave the same way mm -hmm. and i mean i didn't say that like directly to their face but right. like in my mind i'm thinking okay are you doing that because i'm a female and i'm korean and i'm accessible because i actually pick up your phone call rather than your phone call going through a paralegal and then going to an attorney mm. who may may not get it or get it but then like ah, oh, this is not priority right and then don't return your call for like a week's on end um, so being readily accessible, the fact that I'm a female and the fact that I'm kind of young, that you feel like you could do that without having drawn the boundaries. So like there are times when, yeah, I told them like, oh, I don't think it's working out. So it's better that you find someone that you feel more comfortable or you feel like, I don't know, they're, they're more sort of aligned with what your expectations are. Mm. So, yeah. Wow, that's that's huge to be able to do that because um, as a consultant, um, I wish I had the ability to drop clients sometimes. Uh, uh, but then, you know, I work for a company, so it's, that's not my decision. But yeah. I'm sure like even like mental health wise, having that as an option is huge, right? Yeah, but I mean, you, you like it has to be pretty severe, right? Mm, it's right, not like it's my revenue. go to my go-to sort of like knee-jerk reaction, first yeah. instance of resistance or some sort of like confrontation, right? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. then you have to kind of figure out, okay, I need, I need to figure out how to work around that, you know? So mm. I think when I was younger, I was a little bit more hesitant, right? And there's more lead way that I provided the client, right? Just because I didn't have the experience. But like you said, it crosses the boundary where they really infringe upon your free time and they kind of question your ability as to whether or not you're doing your job, right? Mm -hmm. Then it becomes like, I don't know, personal, right? right? So, you know, even though you're paying me hourly, but then there's plenty of other work that I, I feel like I, I want to focus my energies on. And 
I know they're there like in that situation because divorce is also like up there in terms of stress level, same as like losing a loved one, right? So I know that mentally it's one of the toughest stages of their lives and I know that they're going through that, but sometimes like I need to be left alone to do my job. But if you're incessantly just kind of questioning me and then people will say like, oh, I did talk to some other lawyer and this lawyer said this. I'm like, okay, so you're already getting second opinion, which is fine, you know, it's within your rights, but sometimes lawyers tell you what you want to hear, right? Mm. And then if you're sort of second guessing what I'm telling you enough that you're consulting with someone else and you like what they're having to tell you, then okay, then it's probably better for you to switch horses, even if it's midstream, because that's what you want to sort of believe. And I don't know, I think there's still a mentality like Jewish white men will do your case far more effectively than Korean American um, professionals, which there's some truth to that. But at the same time, I don't know, like at what length that stereotype or that mentality holds true Hmm. so yeah Yeah, the thing that i really appreciate about your story jungkook is um yeah that 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 stereotype exists i think for you know asian americans but i feel like you're on the front lines of kind of erasing that stereotype like fighting that stereotype away right um because it is really commonplace for the older korean generation to say things like oh that person's white they're gonna do a better job like um and i don't know if it's because they had some negative experiences like whatever sure, it may sure. be. but um the fact that you're out there kind of fighting that stereotype i think it's gonna serve the future generations um like the third fourth fifth uh, korean american generations it's gonna serve them very well um, so i would also ask you and also your listeners you know like i know my parents' generation, like their peers, seeing them on a professional level, either, you know, like, for example, my dad in North Carolina went to the CPA that was like about same age as he, and then like the CPA probably graduated from Korea, like one of those like, you know, renowned university and came to U.S. as an international student and then like you know they graduated master's or whatever and then they opened their own business and then they had that's how they started right mm-hmm. so I think my parents definitely felt like okay they are more educated than I am obviously and they have the whatever the license to practice their trade and then they kind of went for that. But then there's some stories about like, oh, you know, they made a mistake or they weren't as effective, you know, so that kind of trickled down to to me. Mm. And then sometimes I know I myself have some sort of like stereotype or prejudice against, I guess, first generation professional, right? So given a choice, like if I open uh, Yellow Pages or Google for whatever professional services that that I seek, I don't know if I would pick a Korean American over like an American or other Asian professionals who are younger, mm. you know, than that Korean American professional. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something that each one of us will need to kind of do a soul searching. And obviously, if you yeah. did receive a referral from your friend, like, oh, this Korean American professional you know, did a great job, I'm very satisfied. And then then you're like, okay, that person, you know, is vetted by my friend who I 
admire or who I vouch that that person has a good judgment, then you will naturally go to them. But I wonder if you're the person in that decision maker making uh, sort of situation, whether you would prefer a Korean American versus just a white, you know, generic person of the same like professional quality. Mm, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree that there, there has to be a soul search. Like you kind of have to be introspective ask yourself that question but um, not, not only that though i think the impact um has a there's like a ripple effect right because mm -hmm. if you hear your parents saying i don't trust korean professionals all your life then when you grow up and it's time for you to decide on your career may you might there might be a remnant in your mind saying you're korean american you can't do this work right yeah, so yeah. um I, I think the thing that you're doing is um the listeners, the younger listeners who don't have like a set career yet, now for them, um, you know, small business owner of a, a owner of a law firm is an available option for them. You know, yeah. And so I think, yeah, that's I I actually didn't have that growing up. Um, I sure. like if you want to be a, a owner of a law firm, you have to be like a old white guy with a lot of connections and a lot of money. And like I would have never thought like. Uh, Asian American female could do that. Like I would have never thought that because um, I was never exposed to that. But sure, sure. Yeah, that, that's why I say you're like you're on the front lines. You're opening <laughs> up a new world for these for these people out here. So yeah. you know, I want to thank you for that. Um, I think oh, yeah, awesome. <laughs> well, I think we all have like our uh, sort of mission in life, right? Mm -hmm. um, whether you happen to be there by default or by design or whatever sure sure coincidence um but yeah i mean i i would encourage i i you know having 80 or 90 percent of my clients are koreans and even then like i have far more korean korean speaking clients compared to korean americans who prefer korean uh who prefer English speaking sort of professional. Hmm. Um, but I mean, I do now see demographic shifting where my clients are like kind of younger and we talk in English versus like hmm. talking in Korean, right? And hmm. they're educated here. So, I mean, that's good in a bad way, but you know, that they're getting divorced, but it's hmm. just part of life, right? You know, so like I, it, it is kind of affirming that, that they do want to sort of hire Korean American professionals because they do feel like there's cultural connection. Mm. And also there is sufficient competency where they feel like, okay, whether I go to this person or like go white professional, like the end result is going to be the same. And if that's the case, then I would prefer to support a fellow Korean American. Yeah. I mean, you know, not to say that that's like a must, but I think like that would sort of definitely um, kind of carry the our our profession or our credibility in the community far more and advance our goal of like, you know, I guess also competing with other nationality and say, hey, we have people who are equally competent and they could handle these kind of situations. So now we have our own rising among the ranks and why not utilize them, right? Yeah, so yeah. yeah, I think that would be really good. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. And I remember my dad had a, he had to get a gallbladder surgery done like two or three years ago, one or two years ago. 
And the surgeon, and we didn't know him, but the surgeon that came was a second generation Korean American. Oh yeah. Um, and he couldn't speak Korean that well. Like it was mm-hmm. very basic and he was able to s- explain basic things. But um, my parents' reaction wasn't, oh no, he's Korean. He's not going to do a good job. It was, oh, he's a Korean guy who was educated in America. Like, yeah. So like that was, there's like a yeah, paradigm shift, right? Um, of co- going from, oh, Koreans don't do well to now, oh, I'm so glad like someone mm-hmm. I had this commonality with is going to be working on me. So yeah, that I think that's, uh, yeah, it's happening um, around us right now. Um, and- yeah, I mean, definitely like medical providers and dentists mm-hmm. <laughs> I would go to a Korean like by, like hands down because uh-huh. I know like their workmanship is far superior, right? Mm-hmm. And like attention to detail, like I know it's kind of stereotype, but <laughs> yeah, there are certain professions that I definitely feel like hands down, it's far better to go to a Korean American versus like just nondescript regular you know kind of professional available so yeah yeah maybe you know attorneys are also like on that list now right Mm. compared to like a decade ago or 20 years ago um so now like we i do see a lot more young korean american um attorneys that are not just transactional but also doing litigation right Mm. because a lot of first generation and korean american attorneys they shied away from litigation because their speaking skills were not as great right but now we have second gen korean americans that are like fighting in the courtroom where your presence and and presence and your sort of ability to persuade verbally is superior, you know, mm. or it, it takes such a precedent and such an importance that now the Koreans will feel like, okay, we don't have to kind of outsource that to someone else, but we have someone, a second generation who could uh, fight for us without having to feel like they're handicapped. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, like walking us through your life today. Um, oh, sure. We're, we're at the hour mark and I don't want to take up too much of your time and, and especially because you're, you're busy. But um, before we, we kind of close out, is, is there any last thoughts that you have? Any, any uh, things that you wanted to discuss that we didn't get to? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that I really like about your podcast is like just people being very genuine and Um, being very frank about whatever aspect of their lives. And I hope that I, I, we're not just focusing on like, oh, she's a success story and, you know, rags to riches. By no means, not at all. You know, Mm -hmm. I actually wanted to talk a little bit about like some isolation and anxiety attacks that I've had. Um, So we didn't get to that like this time around. But yeah, I mean, we're, like none of us are invincible, right? Mm. And whatever facade or whatever sort of image of success is portrayed upon, there's equally sort of long shadow like underneath it, you know? And I mean, we did talk about like just a traumatic experience of my parents sort of like failing in their small businesses and the trauma of like having to see that, witness that. I think that that still is part of me. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, like, I, I hope that, you know, your listeners or your viewers know that I'm not sitting on my laurels by by any means, but there are sort of certainly the shortcomings that I've had and my um, professional challenges that, that I have. 
as a solo practitioner that it's not just like you know easy walk in the park but you know but real struggles um so people know that like success is you know koreans are like all about success stories but um there isn't a clear-cut like happy endings like you know just one dynamic dimensional sort of portrayal of who I am, but then mm -hmm. there's multi-dimensional and struggles and, you know, difficulties that I still face. So um, I hope that they, they know that, you know, if they want to reach out to me or if there are some things that they want to talk about, like by all means, like I would love to kind of share my struggles with them. And maybe there will be an opportunity where like I do talk about <laughs> those things where it's not just glitter and, just like success story, but real deep down like hurt and some sort of difficulties that I'm still experiencing that your listeners or viewers could relate to and, and know that they're not alone. Mm, yeah, and I think that's really important. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. We, we talked about it kind of briefly yesterday when we, when we spoke, but yeah, I mean, obviously because the buck stops at you, there's a lot of anxiety in, in terms of, you know, like how you, you know, the work that you do for your clients and, and things like that. and. Um, yeah, for, for people out there who think that owning a small business is all glamour. Yeah, I really hope that they, they understand what you're talking about, like all the struggles mm -hmm. and, you know, all the hard work that it takes to get to, you know, where, where you are. So, yeah, th thanks for sharing that. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And I really love this platform and I really uh, definitely... You know, it's cool that you have your day job, but then you have something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the side mm -hmm. that that is very genuine and, and people are real, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, you're kind of sharing. Um, so I think I that's why I really had no hesitation whatsoever reaching out to you and just mm -hmm. kind of subliminally sent you a message <laughs> like, yeah, I want to be on it. <laughs> no, but it's so. uh, it worked out well because um, when I heard your story, during the networking that I, I really wanted you on as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, like Jungkook said, if you have any questions or if you kind of want to reach out to her, um, you can go through me. Um, you can email me at ihthtpodcast at gmail.com. That's I hope they hear this abbreviated or on Instagram at I hope they hear this. And I, I don't know if I talked about this much, but the YouTube page is still happening <laughs> the videos are still being uploaded so just search i hope to hear this on youtube and you'll be able to view this in video form as well and so uh yeah thank you guys for everybody who turned tuned in thank you guys so much for listening uh thank you so much for being on and uh sure. we'll talk to you guys next time thank you